0: I've already got the prize. The prize is the pleasure of finding a thing out.
1: The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing.
2: Now I am become death, the destroyer of the world. You realize when you know how to think, it empowers you far beyond those know only
0: what you think We go we on and we're live beautiful all right hello everybody thank you for tuning in to the Griffins and Gluons podcast I'm your host Elliot today we have kind of a different format than usual We actually have a panel of three students who I'm going to introduce in a second who are here to interview a very fascinating character in our department someone who whose name I hear just name dropped so often more than Poisson more than Einstein more than Stephen Hawking, it's, it's, it's incredible. And he's no other than Dr. Daniel Ashlock. Dr. Ashlock holds two bachelor's degrees, one in mathematics, the other in commu- computer science, both from the University of Kansas and holds a PhD in mathematics from Caltech. He's taught at Iowa State University and here at the University of Guelph where he's the chair of the bioinformatics group. His work stems from evolutionary computation to game theory and using bioinformatics in multiple applications across multiple fields as well as a bunch of other hobbies and topics that we will get into in this podcast. Professor Ashlock, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. So, like we said before, I'm gonna sort of hands off. Um, I have three uh, very eligible interviewers, interrogators. I don't know what you want to call them yet, but uh, we have Kika Kika Ose Agwe, I knew I was gonna mess that up, I'm sorry, Kika. Uh, (laughs) We have Kika Ose Agwe, uh, third-year nanoscience student, Valeria Telles, who's a third-year physics student, and Jonathan Kintal, who's a third-year nanoscience student. Uh, lady and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, and yeah, so we'll just dive right into it. I'm going to have hands off, and you guys have the mic, and that's that's about it. Go ahead.
3: Okay, so my first question is, what made you want to study math and computer science?
1: Um. So... When I was a kid, I built eavesdropping devices, radio transmitters, a device that could generate 12,000 volts of voltage to make this sort of bazap bazap thing you see in mad scientist labs in movies. I successfully built a bomb that blew all the windows out of an abandoned building in Lawrence, Kansas, where I was 15. Um, and... Um, I know how to make plastic. I know how to make a number of poisons. I can make quite a few dyes. And in general, I wanted to learn every part of science there was. The basement of my mother's house had an enormous fossil collection. There was a place on the concrete floor that looked like black glass because it was. I'd managed to create a thermite reaction, which if you're not familiar with it is um, aluminum plus iron oxide yields iron plus aluminum oxide, but it's so exothermic that the iron is molten. It's a form of incendiary weapon. And so I really loved science, all sorts, um, and played with it a lot. I had a large insect collection, and my father was a professor of entomology, so he had a much larger insect collection. Anyway, what happened was, when I got to university, they kept telling me I had to pick one sort of science, and I really didn't want to. And now I'm a mathematician with skill in computer science and I get to collaborate with biologists and chemists and physicists and engineers and virtual reality people. So math was a way of not choosing a type of science as unintuitive as that might seem.
3: Did you always know you wanted to become a professor or since computer science opens you to a lot of other jobs for example, well now in our age, Computer scientists usually want to work for FANG, which is known as Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, or Google. Sometimes Microsoft is included, but it's not in the acronym. Why didn't you work at one of those big companies and instead chose to become a professor?
1: Because none of them existed except Microsoft, and it was a small no-account company that wasn't doing anything when I got my computer science degree. You're missing the gray hair, I think. (laughs) Um, So essentially, when I took... I've programmed a mainframe in machine language using punch cards. That's how old my computer science degree is. And the career opportunities were very different. Mostly who I could work for was the phone company, the personnel department of a large corporation like IBM or Sears Roebuck, or the National Security Agency. Now, I've since had five students disappear into the National Security Agency. Apparently it's a place where a lot of mathematics gets done. And at the time I was just an American, I hadn't moved to Canada yet. But essentially, you know, the real answer to your question is because those opportunities didn't exist. And no, I didn't always want to be a professor. I didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, And I sort of hit on professor when I realized in my fifth year of my undergraduate that I really didn't want to leave university. So then I started applying to graduate schools and um, I picked Caltech because somebody told me it was a good school. I later found out it was a very good school, which is a bad thing. Can you guess what's wrong with it?
0: Hard, hard to stand out. Everyone there's a super genius.
1: Um, like stand out isn't the right word. The word is survive. Two thirds of the class that was admitted with me left without a degree. You don't stand out at, well, occasionally someone stands out at Caltech and they are Einstein, but mostly you survive (laughs) it. And if you survive it, everybody goes, wow, you survived that? It had some other problems too. For instance, when I was there, there were five guys for every girl and that made sort of strange circumstances. Among the graduate students, it had a weird effect, which was by the end of their first year, almost all the female graduate students were married.
2: Mm.
1: Though, again, that was a long time ago. Now, mind you, I found an easy way out of that, which is after my first year there, I got married to the woman I dated in high school.
3: So in IPS class, you would always share with us uh, fractals. Um, I was just wondering where your, um, I guess it's more of a fascination, where your hobby with uh, designing interesting fractals came from or when you decided?
1: Um. It actually was the result of a now dead language called Turbo Pascal having fairly good graphics routines built into it. I was doing different things with the graphics routines and trying to find the fanciest picture I could. And then I read a popular article on the Mandelbrot set, programmed it up and realized I could do almost anything. Then I found a very old um, piece of software called FractInt. And the reason it was called FractInt was because it did pure integer arithmetic to do fractals. And this requires a whole lot of very hard programming, but it means that it makes fractals very quickly. And then um, I rapidly figured out there were a lot of fractal algorithms that weren't in FractInt and started tinkering with them. Now, sort of oddly, my biggest source of interesting new fractals that only I know how to make is bad programming. For instance, um, to make a Julia set, you pick a number in the complex plane then for a region of the complex plane you repeatedly take this complex number w and you take the point in the plane and say start with the point square it and add your number w square that and add your number w square that and add your number w and just keep going and one of two things happens either it gets more than two units away from the origin of the complex plane or it doesn't now mind you you can't wait forever for it to not do so so usually you just put some bound like a thousand tries and then the fractal is all the points that don't escape. And the non-fractal, or the outside of the fractal is all the points that do escape. Now, I actually programmed it incorrectly so that it was using two different values, adding them alternately. And I could tell there was something wrong because I got this really cool looking fractal, but it had large connected regions and yet they were not connected to one another. And there's a theorem that says a Julia set is either a connected set or it's a dust of unconnected points. Each point is contained in a neighborhood with no other points of the Julia set in it. And so then I fiddled around with it and realized that I programmed it wrong and found a whole new class of fractals. And since then, I've been playing with these things quite a bit. I can now evolve them both by selecting the parameters and by selecting the pattern of the application of different parameters. And just in general, it gives you more complex dimensions to control the fractals appearance which means you get a lot more fractals. But it it started with, I want to do some cool graphics. And then because I was by then a math major, I could actually follow all the math needed to at least program fractals. Um, In the last few years, I actually wrote a language for specifying fractals that I'm trying to get a formal student of mine who's now a professor in Russia to turn into a phone app. And it has Literally tens of thousands of fractal algorithms in it, most of them with controls. So you can do all sorts of things with it. So, yeah, you know, I, I just kind of blundered into fractals. And since I'm also trained in math and computer science, it was very easy to blunder into fractals.
0: Do you mind if I actually ask a quick question?
1: Um, what, what are some of the sort of more commercial
0: uses and applications for fractals? That, like like you said, sort of develop into an app. Is is that simply as as like code for an app that could be used like as as, okay. like, as like base for like other things, or is it specifically like fractals can solve this sort of problem and this sort of problem?
1: Um, the app and the one my wife already did for Newton's method fractals are intended as what is called a casual game. It's something you can play with and make pretty pictures on your phone or your tablet. So no real applications. Commercial applications of fractals are a little hard to find with a few exceptions. Um, If you look at Michael Barnsley's book, Fractals Everywhere, he manages to develop an incredibly efficient image compression routine that uses fractals that lets you compress images way more than anyone else can. And it's completely useless because it takes an unbelievable amount of computational power to find the compression path. So, you know, If if you have several supercomputers to put on the problem, you can compress a movie down to something very, very small. And that might've mattered if storage hadn't gotten so cheap and bandwidth hadn't gotten so plentiful. Now, the two places I know where fractals are actually useful is um, making landscapes, trees, and clouds for video games and for military simulations. I've actually had a grant to help make the background of a military simulation look more realistic. That was for the Kansas National Guard. And I was a subcontractor because the student of the former student of mine who actually got the grant was like, oh, I don't quite understand this. And then he gave me some money and, and, and I helped him figure it all out. But then the other one is something that will be showing up in a doctoral defense in January. And it's very interesting. Um, well, you can see that there's a lot of things, a lot of commercial applications of being able to optimize something.
0: Right.
1: Fair uh, enough. Okay, so here's the thing. We've worked out two different fractal representations that don't make pretty pictures, but let us optimize functions. And so why would you want to do that? Well, both of them change the problem of optimizing a function in three dimensions or eight dimensions or whatever from specifying three to eight numbers, which is the usual way of doing it into simply traversing a character string. The character string is a series of generating rules for a fractal. And that fractal is capable of using those strings to encode a dense mesh of points in real space. So now, instead of optimizing in real space, I can optimize in string space. Now, okay, why would you want to go all that trouble? Well, it's demonstrably hard to find an efficient algorithm to database points in real space so you can tell which ones you visited and which ones are close to easily. The fractal transformation, however, turns them into strings which I can store in an everyday Dictionary like the ones you get in Java or Python. And so I find an optima. I put it in the dictionary I find another optima. I put it in the dictionary. I start finding an optima I realize it shares a prefix with something already in the dictionary. I deep six it and start over So this lets me rapidly enumerate optima. So if you have a space with thousands of solutions I can find most of them pretty quickly which means I don't have the problem of getting stuck in a local optima because I shoot the local optima in the head right after I find it and kill it.
0: Fair enough. That, that's an analogy that I understand right there, actually. But, uh, and, cool. and,
1: and it really matters that the object I'm using is um, based on fractal technology. That's what manages to get the points spread out in a mesh throughout the space.
0: Right. That's very cool, actually. Yeah, we'll definitely look into that for sure. Kika, you've been,
1: you've been yep. oddly quiet, so we're going to give you... It's a little hard to look into because you'd have to find one of the two published papers, but if you send me an email, I can tell you what they are. Um, Sorry, go on.
0: Sorry, no, no, yeah. I'll, I'll, that's good. Thank you. you saved me from a rabbit hole of, of Google searches. So yeah, Kika, <laughs> yeah, give so, it to us. You've been awfully quiet.
2: So you have a, a math blog, Occupy Math, and I remember the first the math blog, Occupy Math.
1: Oh, Occupy Math. Got it. Yeah. Yes.
2: So, I remember the first, uh, the first blog entry that I ever read was uh, "Math is not a form of ritual, uh, ritual ritual magic." I think that's what. Math
1: it's is not a form mm-hmm. of ritual magic. Yes. Yeah,
2: and uh, I just wanted to understand what prompted you to start the
1: blog. Um, my daughter. My daughter is a publisher in California, and this happened before she was a publisher and she thought she might want to be a social media consultant. And she thought that editing a blog would give her a lot of credibility as a social media consultant. And so she said, dad, could, you're always complaining about math and how it's taught wrong and how nobody knows any math. And why don't you write up all your complaints as a blog? And I said, what's a blog? And that got a little weird for a bit, but, um, Presently, she explained it to me. And so we started writing Occupy Math. And it turns out that I enjoy writing blogs. I'm now writing a second blog called Dan and Andrew's Game Place. And I'm developing a blog for a tutoring service that one of my former students is founding. Though it'll go live probably in April. This is His, his idea is to tutor the children of the super rich to raise enough money to fund a school to help gifted children Partly because he was gifted and it really led to a lot of abuse. Everybody was, well, he's gifted and exceedingly arrogant and obnoxious, both. And so his life was difficult. And what he's trying to build is a haven for people like him. And um, he asked me on board, partly because he's aware on some level that I can at least simulate being a human being. And so I'm helping him with that end of the business. So he's got like eight other people and it looks like a really good group. And I'm also working on a blog for a group that is um, working with the problem of representation in computer science. Um, When you want to solve a problem, the first thing you got to do is figure out how to explain it to the computer. And that's actually the core of my research is figuring out explanations of a problem to the computer that make the problem easy for the computer. And I'm sort of oversimplifying when I say that.
3: Uh, on the topic of math and it being taught incorrectly too often, um, there, in your textbook, Fast Start Calculus for Integrated Physics, in the intro you mentioned uh, that you like to teach, you like to cover more content at a faster rate. Um, currently you're teaching Math 2000 and I communicate with a lot of the CS students who are currently in that course and they feel as if, they feel that, they feel they know that you're teaching a lot of content In such a short period of time but they haven't read that intro of the textbook where it kind of explains why you do it so well except
1: in math 2000 i'm not teaching more content i'm covering the same amount of content that other professors that teach it do the problem in math 2000 is it seems like i'm going really fast because we just jumped a wall into a completely different part of the territory
3: yeah it's definitely more different than like what you would do in like Only first year. Um, But are there any other teaching methods you like to use that maybe not many other professors are using or that you think are unique to you?
1: Um, Something that happened a lot at Iowa State is people would notice that I was always tied for first place or at worst in second place for being the best teacher in the department, which had 40 people in it. And so they would ask me to mentor the younger faculty or even some of the older faculty in how to be a good teacher. And this turned out to be something I was very bad at because my teaching technique depends idiosyncratically on my personality. And in fact, almost every professor has a problem that their teaching method is something that, you know, you can try and teach people how to teach, but a lot of it is just the kind of person they are. And so to try to answer your question, first of all, keep moving, but circle back. So in, in, in IPS, I did go pretty quickly, but we kept bringing up old topics in the context of new problems. And so, you know, that keeps it from just, people get a second or the third chance to learn something and it keeps it from just being a slaughter on those that can't keep up. And then the other thing I like is if at all possible, I want to give examples that people will understand of what to do with the math. I know mathematicians that think of mathematics as an abstract linguistic exercise. And while they do have models and examples in their heads, all their applications of math are to do harder math. And so like, um, let's take the projective plane. A projective plane is a set and a bunch of subsets of the set, all the same size that have the following property. Any two of those sets intersect in exactly one point, And if you pick any two points, they show up in exactly one of those subsets. And in fact, what it is is two lines intersect in a point, two points define a line. A projective plane is a finite version of Euclidean geometry. And then there's a third condition, which is there must be four points, no, two of which, no more than two of which are in any one line. And that's just a non-triviality condition. Okay. so. That was a very abstract thing to say, wasn't it? Yes. Now, you can make one of these on seven points with seven lines, each containing three points. Now, here's where it becomes an application. Suppose you're testing seven drugs and you want to see if injecting two of the drugs into a mouse causes an unexpected reaction. The drugs have individually been found to be safe to inject into mice and people. And the problem is sometimes when you inject a second drug into a person, they get purple spots or drop dead or some other unfortunate effect. And so since there are 21 pairs of, in, within seven objects, you'd have to inject each pair of drugs into one mouse and use up 21 mice. If, on the other hand, it's very rare to get a drug cross-reaction, then you can use the projective plane to inject three drugs each into seven mice and every pair of drugs is injected into one of the mice. So you cut the number of mice you need to kill by two thirds, which is a really good application, in my view. Yeah, that's a... Uh... And so that's an example of an anchoring application for a horribly abstract thing.
2: Yeah, um, on the topic of uh, teaching, I remember we had a conversation in the past where you mentioned uh, in high school, you had a, uh, when learning math, there were a lot more geometry involved than nowadays during high school. And you mentioned how that was more helpful in terms of visualizing things. I don't know if you, if uh, I don't know, would you say that uh, it's a method that should be more broadly applied in terms of teaching more geometry in high school? Or do you think that that just works well because of it's you personally and that's your, uh, that
1: approach much math works for you? Well, in this case, I was taking the course and the geometry helped me and I think it helped other people. Um, I do think we ought to go back to teaching geometry. People stopped um, because the original reason for teaching geometry in school was because it helped you navigate a ship with a compass and an astrolabe and a chronometer. And so since, we have global positioning systems now, and you really don't need that to navigate a wooden sailing ship when we really don't navigate wooden sailing ships very much anymore. People didn't see the real need to teach geometry and spherical trigonometry. But for instance, when you go to learn calculus, the geometry makes it enormously easier to understand the calculus. I mean, every time I have to do Riemann sums and we take the limit of rectangles to show what an integral is, I'm fighting the fact that people are just barely know what a rectangle is. And if I ship to the trapezoidal method or something else, they go, what's a trapezoid? And so geometry is a chance to learn the underpinnings of calculus. And also it's a wonderful domain in which to learn how to do proofs. I had a course in um, 11th grade in how to do proofs that was entirely embedded in geometry. As far as I can tell, The students I'm teaching in Math 2000 either have had a little bit of proof in, uh, what, CIS-1910, is it?
3: It would be, yeah, CIS-1910 and CIS-2910.
1: Yeah, but not a lot of practice doing proofs, or they've never done proofs before in their life, or they've done one proof, which is epsilon-delta methods in calculus. And, of course, the problem with that is epsilon-delta methods are really subtle and confusing, so they're not a great place to start doing proofs. So yeah, I, I would like to see geometry come back and I don't think it was just me.
3: Um, so Dan, um, question on the Department of Mathematics and Statistics homepage, you're uh, featured in Real World Research right now as um, working on a AI method for distributing the COVID vaccine. Yep. Um, I was wondering if you could share any more information about that because it sounds very interesting and relevant.
1: <laughs> so it's actually a team, me Sheridan Houghton down at Brock University, James Hughes at um, St. Francis Francis Xavier out um, Nova Scotia way, and Joseph Brown at, oh, I forget the name of it, but he's at a university in Russia that was built like six years ago, and they hired a bunch of Westerners to try and create a credible research group, since Russians have a tendency to publish in Russia in Russian, and so a lot of their universities are ignored, and this whole thing is uh, an attempt to break that shell. Um, We also have a number of students, including three of my doctoral students, Amanda Saunders, Matt Studley, and Rachel Brown. Um, And let me see. Okay. If we don't have a lot of vaccines, then the question is, who do we give them to first? And right now, government policy looks like it's going to be frontline medical people and old people who are vulnerable to the disease. We've already mentioned to demonstrate that that's a terrible idea in our simulation software. And that's because the correct way when there aren't a lot of doses of vaccine to protect old people is not to vaccinate them. It's to keep them from ever even seeing the virus by stopping its spread through society. Old people tend to be kind of localized. And so they're easier to protect by building a wall around them than most people. And there's actually quite a few of them. And in fact, I think the, the, The people they're not thinking of vaccinating right now that most need vaccination are grocery store workers, if restaurants are open, servers in restaurants, and like delivery people, though delivery people are less urgent because usually they can make their deliveries without much contact. Now, what we're doing is, first of all, in 2011, I actually won with two of my students an award for the best paper at CEC, the Congress on Evolutionary Computation, Um, And it beat 807 other papers to win that award. What it was, was a way of taking the data, how many people got sick each week. And from that building a space of plausible networks of who gave the disease to who that's called a contact network. Okay. Um, And I've been playing with that for a while now, because I thought it was a fairly cool application. And also The technique for evolving contact networks can also be used to do a bunch of other things with networks. So we have like a paper we're sort of half done with, which has 12 test problems and fitting an epidemic model is one of them. But another one is finding a graph that's very hard to color. Or um, another one is simply finding a graph that has a high clumpiness if you try and break it into communities and so on. Anyway, when the pandemic hit, um, Sheridan, who at Sheridan Houghton, who is a former um, chair of the computer science department down at Brock, and an old friend of mine, she and I got together and talked, and then we looked up her former master's student, who's now a professor at Sir Francis Xavier, and had a bit of a chat with him, and we decided to put in a grant, and we put the grant into Ontario. Ontario gave us six days to write the grant, and said that no grants would be considered after those six days. And then we got our grant in, two other people did, and they said, we only got three grants, we're extending it two weeks. So that was kind of annoying. And then they said, we will let you know if your grant is funded within two weeks. And 13 weeks later, they finally let us know we weren't funded. And oh, wow. this is typical of how Ontario does its research money. I, I've almost given up on interacting with the government of Ontario, and that's not a Ford effect. It's been this way for 20 years. Um, though Ford isn't helping. But then the province of Nova Scotia put out a solicitation for we'd like grants. And so we just we, we since James is the Nova Scotian, we put him in, head, in charge of the grant and did a little bit of rewriting and sent it in and they funded it. So that's what's funding the effort right now. Um, we've put in two other grants, both of which have well, no, one of which has been turned down and one of apparently been completely lost by the Canadian military because they told us we, they got the grant and then they refused to admit that they got the grant. And now we're working on yet another grant to keep the team funded, though that one, um, the tentative title of the grant is an advanced sentinel system for detecting emerging vector borne diseases, including intelligent planning for field work and binning of environmental DNA. And that title was constructed around what everybody who wanted to be on the project knew how to do. But it's actually not a bad idea. Um, Hang on, let me finish the first story before I start the second one. Anyway, this ability to create networks, um, my wife started working on it and managed to both speed it up and come up with an interesting variant. What she did was she took the Guelph Wellington Dufferin data and then segregated into the number of people in Guelph that got sick and the number of people outside of Guelph that got sick to create two epidemic profiles and fit them simultaneously. And what that did was instead of getting five clusters of graphs, like she did when she just fit all the data together, she got one cluster of graphs. It was one of the ones she was getting before, and it seems to model the epidemic much more accurately. Now, once we have the graph, James, who's a specialist in evolving computer programs, is evolving small computer programs to decide who gets the vaccine. And so far, the one he's gotten best is Um, vaccinate the people that have the most contacts in their local part of the graph. And the way we're scoring these is how many people don't get COVID. So, you know, it's a very simple scoring system and it scores a lot better than everything that officialdom is currently considering as a method of um, handing out the vaccine. So I'm actually fairly frantically writing a couple of papers. So we'll have papers to send to public health officials about, no, don't do that. Here's some scientific research that says what might be better. And, of course, this is into the teeth of trying to get all my homework graded and run my final exams. And, oh, um, probably, oh, wait, at least one of you knows this. I've also been made chair of the math stat department starting Monday, and that's not going to help my free time.
0: Congratulations. No, no, uh, wrong yeah.
1: wrong, wrong words. <laughs> Joey, oh, okay. Joey, the student <laughs> in Russia, said condolulations, which is a very <laughs> good, if made up word. <laughs>
0: Do you mind if i ask actually um in in terms of your in in terms of that grant do you have sort of health canada and sort of an ethics board kind of breathing down your back no health
1: canada doesn't know we're doing it and there is no ethics board we're doing computer science research now having said that we have already published one paper on the ethics of handing out vaccines and we had two people who were actual specialists in ethics a philosophy professor and a sociologist on the paper Who helped us with it. So we're worried about that, but no, nobody's trying to regulate us or anything.
0: Right. So so that if you came to a conclusion saying, you know, this this group A shouldn't have it while group B should kind of thing, there isn't someone stepping in
1: trying to interfere,
0: or or there isn't that sort of um mentality when conducting uh your your experiments at all?
1: Notice I just said don't give the vulnerable old people the vaccine.
0: Yeah, of course. And then I went on
1: to say because you can save them more efficiently a different way. Right, but
0: which which, which, sorry, which is a very unpopular opinion. That's that's it. And it makes sense to you, and it it makes sense through your research. But if you were to come out and say that, there there might be uproar or whatever, and, and sort of the misunderstanding.
1: There might be, it would depend on how we set it. And that's one of the reasons they have me doing the talking because I can walk in and say, I'm deeply concerned about old people and this plan to vaccinate a few of them, which is all we can do with the available doses of vaccine, will leave many of them unprotected. So I think I have a way to protect most of them. Do you see how right. spinning it that way might help head off the the, the fufurah? Right. Do you know who Chris Bow is? Afraid not. He used to be a professor at Guelph. He moved to Waterloo and he is an expert in doing epidemiology. And he published this sort of mold breaking paper that reached the conclusion, if we want to save old people from the flu, we need to vaccinate school children, because almost every old person that gets the flu gets it from some from a grandkid who goes to school and caught it there. And this was a correct, carefully supported position. And he got death threats.
0: Yeah. She's and were and, and, and were those death threats what prompted him to, to 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 leave Guelph? Like did they come from Guelph oh, or well, No, no, no. This general, published or?
1: was this pub paper was published when he was at Waterloo and his view of oh, okay. death threat threats, since he is also a transplanted American, was sort of Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, jeez. I mean when people threaten me with death occasionally and, and my usual reaction to it is, yeah, sure, right. You would die if you tried.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, I grew up, I grew up going to a school where I was one of six white kids at the school. I got beat up all the time. Um, I got fairly good at hand fighting because of it. And instead of turning into somebody who's afraid of everything, I turned into somebody who's pretty hard to scare. It's one of the two reactions you get to,, you know, I grew up in a town that was the first town over the border in the north on the Underground Railway during the Civil War. And it also houses the only university for First Nations in the United States. So the population is one third people with recent African ancestry and about one quarter First Nations. And I happened to be in the school district that was rich with both these populations. It was quite an experience, but a lot of the kids of recent African ancestry were pretty down on white people. You know, after I'd been there a year, it calmed down a lot and they were willing to accept me. And in fact, a lot of them made friends with me in high school on the theory that if they were friends with me, they might pass their math class. Interesting. Canada is a very calm, peaceful place by comparison to the United States.
0: Yeah, I, I was watching the news and I saw a school and I forgot that they had metal detectors at the at the at the entrance to the school to make sure no one was bringing in any
1: guns. That was kind of a thing that I I forgot happened. So when I was in graduate school, it was in Pasadena, California, where Caltech is. And one of the other graduate students' wife was a teacher in the Pasadena public schools. And she was trying to engage the students' interests. So she asked me to come in as a guest speaker on any topic at all. And um, after consulting with her for a while, I chose the history of weapons because I thought that would hold their attention. And it was a very educational visit for me. First of all, as you say, everybody had to go through the metal detector because that's the only way they could make sure the students would go through it. And then when I got to the classroom, the first thing I noticed was that approximately half the female students were pregnant. This was sort of startling, but that was because they were paying the pregnant student, female students to go to high school. And the theory they would need a high school education even more than the average person. So. It wasn't a 50% pregnancy rate. It was more like a 10% pregnancy rate, but attendance was poor. So it was 50% among the people that showed up. Then I, I went through things in sequence. I started with the idea of stick, sharp stick, fire hardened sharp stick, stick with a triangular piece of stone on the tip of it. That's a spear. And then the next thing was an addle, and they'd never heard of that, but I brought one and I threw a stick across the room really hard and that impressed them. Do you guys know what an atlatl is? Yeah, spear throwers for like really short spears. Yes, mm-hmm. and you you can throw a spear a very long way with one of them, Oops. and then uh, and and then I said and then you get to bow and arrow, and I don't want to demonstrate one of those inside the classroom because you know we break stuff, and and by now they were looking a little bored. Then I started going through guns, and I started off with a matchlock pistol where. You screw a piece of cloth, perhaps saturated with alcohol into the breech of the gun, light it, and then you point the gun at your target until it goes off. It's a very primitive mechanism for igniting the gunpowder. Anyway, two of the students argued with me. They said that no one would be fool enough to make a gun like that. And the reason they said that was they were both fairly competent gunsmiths. Interesting. The students? The students. Yes. This is oh, interesting. This was terrifying. <laughs> They know how guns work, and they know how to build better guns than the one I was talking about.
0: I mean, just, sorry, I, define, I, when, define... When, I,
1: when I finished graduate school, I didn't even apply for jobs in the Los Angeles area. Sorry, you were saying No, I was gonna
0: say d- d- define gunsmith, like someone who knows their way around a gun, or just like someone and who builds
1: do, like, and can do field repairs and could strip one gun to repair another. And who knows how to do something like put in an extended magazine. Um, I think one of them knew how to make his own rounds so he could overpower it, you know, put extra powder into the cartridge. I mean, I know a lot of that from having taken military history, but only in theory. I think he had like a workbench (laughs) in his mother's basement.
0: (laughs) Wait, Wait, Sorry, this was this was high school, correct? This was a these high were, school. These
1: were high school students. These I was an doctoral students. student at Caltech at the time. Interesting. Oh,
0: my gosh. Well, you should have you showed them your, your poison collection in your, in your mother's basement as well. That would have really
1: By then, that was all packed up and gone because I didn't live at my mother's house anymore. But, right. um, in fact, the principal made me submit my lecture ahead of time. And all mention of poison, napalm, and Molotov cocktails were taken out of the lecture. I've always thought it was really neat that you could make napalm out of household ingredients. Do you know what they are? <laughs> should, 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 we, should we
0: release this? You can tell us, but should we release this podcast after? Oh, now this is well known.
1: No, what you do is you get ivory snowflakes and mix them into gasoline until it jellies. The reason you want ivory snow, ivory has this advertising campaign that says, so pure it floats, and it's a lie. It floats because they whipped air into it. Right. But that means that if you dissolve that soap in gasoline, you get gasoline with a lot of air in it that's jellied. And that's almost exactly napalm.
3: Oh. Interesting.
1: You know, in case we ever need to revolt against the Ford government and <laughs> take out the tanks he sends against us. The
2: local militia. Oh gosh. Pardon? I said the local militia.
1: Oh, dude. Was- Have you seen the show Trevor Noah just did on what militias are? No, no. It, it's worth a look. I like Trevor Noah. He is a sharp cookie, and he manages to make almost everything interesting
0: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you did you watch the, the John Stewart show before uh, before Trevor Noah? because he, he, he took over
1: for John Stewart, or: No, you see, the thing is is until fairly recently, I had kids around the house and watched very little TV. Uh, I see. Now they're all grown up. My youngest has a master's degree. Jeez. That's Mind you, in classical guitar performance, but it is a master's degree.
2: Uh, yeah, so something like that. I remember uh, you told me about the setting game you were working on. It involved uh,
1: time travelers and white hats and black hats. That one is still in my notebook to develop. It's a cool idea, but I haven't had a chance to work on it right now because I've got a fairly small group just uh, my son and his fiance moved in with us. I'm running a campaign that works on a much smaller group. It's called the 13th Precinct. And what it is is about a police precinct in um, Greenwich Village on Manhattan Island where the person running it is a powerful mage and he's protecting the city from supernatural threats. And the two characters are two of the detectives that are themselves at least somewhat supernatural. And so it's, it's a good environment for a small number of people. The black hat, white hat, time traveler campaign needs like five or six people playing. And my game playing got stomped on pretty hard by the pandemic. Jeez.
0: So we're, uh, we're approaching 42 minutes. This has been an epic conversation, by the way. Thank you very much. I and learned yet, a lot. Uh, not
1: that much math. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's exactly why. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, so we're, we're probably going to wrap up soon. I just wanted to know: Are there any other burning questions that the three of you have uh, now that you have the the podium?
3: I think we handled the burning with the napalm. Oh, Val, you have something. <laughs> I guess I got one more question about math. So, oh, good. Next, next, win, uh, or the winter coming up? So, Winter Twenty One. Um, you are launching your. Course Math 4310, Combinatorics and Graph Theory, for the first time at the University of Guelph. Are there any other courses you'd like to see um, offered? Math courses, of course?
1: Um, Yes. Um, Math 4140, the second semester of Abstract Algebra, which was cancelled. And in fact, there's room to teach a whole course in graph theory and a whole course in combinatorics. So splitting them into two courses would be nice. Um, at Iowa State, there were five different courses in algebra and combinatorics, and we currently have no graduate courses in these subjects as well. And this is largely because we are essentially, for a university the size of the University of Guelph, the natural size for a math and stat combined department would be 50 to 70 professors, and I believe we currently have 19. We just lost Julie Horrocks, who is retiring. This is why I get to be chairs. She, um. Passed out, hit her head so hard she needed to have her scalp stapled, and they can't figure out why she passed out, and so she's taking a medical retirement. She was already serving an extra year as chair that she didn't want because we didn't want to do a chair search during a pandemic. And so in the spring or in the winter semester, we're going to be doing a chair search during a pandemic. So yeah, I I would really like to expand out to more of the algebra and combinatorics classes and the argument against them is, is, no, we're an applied math department, and it really doesn't make sense because they have become applied math. During the Second World War, applied math with cal- math was calculus and differential equations. But now with computers dominating the landscape, combinatorics and graph theory just come up again and again and again in applied math. Does that roughly answer your question? Yeah.
0: Very cool. Um, so, I guess with that in mind, we'll uh, we'll we'll start signing off. But uh, but honestly, thank you so much. It's been really cool. Uh, it's been really cool, kind of learning some of the some of the some of the stories, some of the war stories, and and interesting topics. We'll we'll be sure to have you on again, so you can we will there'll just be a whole episode dedicated to your time in in the states and teaching. Um,
1: if I can suggest uh, a topic, asking me about. The creation evolution debate and evolutionary computation can trigger a whole raft of stories. I used to be an active crusader against the insane form of creationism. There are sane forms, but there's also an insane form. And one of the things this led to was my starting to use evolutionary computation, which was turned out to be the foundation of my career. But that's enough of a pitch for that.
0: Perfect. I'm sure somebody somebody just got really enraged and goes, I, "I I know I know how to how to counter that." So, if anybody's listening, if anyone would like to take on the great Ashlock, please uh, please let us know.
1: Let's avoid well. titles like that.
0: <laughs> um Yeah. Le- also, let me know you want what, what your title, what you want me to call you next time. Then, um, but, uh, but yeah, Dan, that works. Just Dan. The thing
1: is, Professor Ashlock makes me look over my shoulder for my father, even forty years later. <laughs>
0: should, should I just say Dan, or should I say you know Dan? You're <laughs> <like, laughs> not prime, ye foolish mortal. <laughs> You wonderful! Wonderful. Okay, are we done? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So I guess the last thing is, you know, where can where can people read more
1: about you and uh, and your bioinformatics group? Um, the bioinformatics group. Uh, stay tuned. Our website is almost up. If you look into my blog, Occupy Math, though, that will point you to most of the stuff I've done. And I think if you Google Occupy Math, you'll find it because I'm currently up to about a thousand hits a week. So it's 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 getting into the search engines,
0: right? And and that's occupy with uh, occupy and then and then the, the Greek symbol pi well, at the end. Uh, yeah, but or... but
1: it isn't spelled that way in the search engine. It's just the normal English word occupy. It's just a no, 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 logo. Of it's it's got the funny pi. And of the course, thing yeah. is, is that you have to be really careful which pi you use, or people read it as occult math, which is not what I'm trying for at all. <laughs>
0: Or, or maybe it is, and you're just not telling us, but um, <laughs> either way. Um, have you ever read
1: The Laundry Novels by Charles Strauss?
0: No. It's no, an I'm updating
1: of Cthulhu for the modern world in which there is an English intelligence agency that prevents people from proving certain theorems and writing certain computer programs because they do invoke the elder gods from outside of the universe. It's a that's really interesting. interesting series of novels, and I swear that's not what I'm doing.
0: Is, is that is that recent? Because there's there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of sort of resurgence in HP Lovecraft sort of media. There've been a few games and a few a few books.
1: In fact, I I occasionally referee Call of Cthulhu, but no, I think I think this is like it starts about ten years ago, and it's pretty good. But I don't think it's the recent resurgence. And it borrows from HP Lovecraft, but only a little. For instance, on the Earth where the, where the laundry exists. The Deep Ones and the Chthonians are fellow residents of Earth and they have treaties with the Deep Ones.
0: Interesting. I'll look into it then. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, if but, you. Uh, the,
1: the second book is The Jennifer Morgue and it's about the Deep Ones. It's very interesting.
0: Very cool. Well, I'm not bombshell then. And uh, <laughs> um, completely different than how we started the conversation. Thank you very much, Professor. Sorry, Dan Ashlock. Daniel Ashlock. Dan. All, all the above, Kika, Valeria, John. Thank you all so much for coming in and asking these questions. And uh, and yeah, and that'll do it for us. Thank you everybody for tuning in. And yeah, thank you very You're much. Down.